Thank you, Billy. And Max Boffman, great job reading that text. I mean, that was awesome. Don't think I could have hit all those names just right. I'm guessing he worked on that one a little bit. So uh, what, a, what a great time to come together and, and celebrate our God and our Savior with all generations. And that's what this Sunday is all about, All Generations Sunday. Um, thank you, young people and, and older people for together leading us in, in, in worship. And so this morning as we continue our journey through Genesis, I think you're going to see uh, at least three generations in this text when we get into the middle of it here. Uh, so we'll, we'll wait for that for a minute. But, but right now, we, we've just ended chapter 45, uh, this beautiful story of Joseph's redemption and, uh, well, not really his redemption, but the redemption of his relationship with his brothers, uh, this reconciliation with them through forgiveness. And now, in this chapter, we're going to see his reunification with his father. And this is also significant, and it's also with tears. But you know, there's some things in between uh, that are unspoken. And actually, Nate Smith and I were talking about this uh, last Sunday afternoon. We, we, we bumped into each other at the gym, and we were kind of talking about um, what do you think the brother's explanation to, to their father Jacob looked like exactly? Um, you know, how do they explain how Joseph actually did end up in Egypt? Might have been a little bit awkward. And, and what would you have been, a, what would have been like to be a fly on the wall maybe of the tent in which they're trying to explain all this? You know, once, once Jacob's actually come to realize, yes, his son is alive, but he, he probably had a question for them. You know, you guys brought me his torn up bloody coat. W- what happened there? And, and you wonder, did, did they repent fully, such that they owned up to their own sin to their father? Did they tell him about exactly what had happened 22 years ago? And then how did he react to that? You know, did he line up the 10 of them in a line and just give them one big corporate slap? You know, bam, 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 bam. And then I forgive you? Well, how did that work? We don't know. But what we do know here, we have this beautiful story of a journey it was a reunification, kind of a movie script reunification, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it began with a, a journey. Um, the, the, the father Jacob and his household, with all generations, with three generations, have to make this journey to Egypt. So we've got three points this morning. And, and the first point is that to do that, Jacob really needed a reassurance from God. And that's what we see happen here in the first four verses of this text. God reassures Jacob of what he's doing uh, in his divine plan for him, that he should indeed go to Egypt. So let's look at this a little more carefully here. You might have missed something. Um, In verse 1, we read, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, again, notice this wasn't a visit he was making to his son Joseph. This was a complete move with everything that he had. I've got a picture here of something similar, maybe. Uh, this is a photo uh, I think I took. Um, if, if not, one of my teammates took it, and I took another one similar. I can't remember, but I, I, one day I was up in the middle of Afghanistan, a place called Chagcharan, way up in the mountains, 
um, kind of high plains and mountains up at 7,200 feet. And I went out for a run early in the morning. And I passed a caravan of nomads who really hadn't changed a whole lot since the days of, of Jacob. Uh, the, the difference here, of course, these guys had camels. And we read that Joseph actually sent carts, right, wagons, which would have been a technological wonder at the time. Uh, but he sent wagons from prosperous Egypt to help move his family. That's what these folks are doing. They're, they're moving. They're, they've pulled up chalks, and they're, they're, that's everything they own right there. There's their, their animals and their families on camels. Their, their houses, which are big tents, their food, everything. They're, they're moving. They're migrating. They're nomads like Jacob. So thank you for that. Y'all can, y'all can take that down now. But th- what's important here is to understand that Jacob knew he wasn't coming back. He, he was going to die in Egypt. Now, Beersheba was really kind of the borderlands, so to speak, of, of Canaan. And it would have been very easy for him at that point to have gotten uneasy and to have looked back. And even though Jacob was not a landowner, he had been a nomad all his life anyway, most of his life he had lived in this territory that we call Canaan right? That, that was the promised land that God had promised Abraham. So even though he didn't yet really own anything beyond the grave, there was a little bit of land where there, a cave basically, that was the grave of his fathers. That little bit of land he owned, that was it. Not enough room to park your, your sheep, okay? Just a little cave. That was all he had. But he knew that God had promised, and by faith he believed that one day, this place, this, this whole land in which he, he dwelt in, would become the land of his descendants. And so, moving from that land to pagan Egypt, which Egypt was the powerhouse. Egypt was a, a, a huge civilized society, all right? But they were pagans. These were, these were people who worshipped false deities and had a lot of power. And so, that wasn't part of his life plan, to move to Egypt, Okay? And so Jacob was actually leaving his comfort zone. Does that make sense? He's leaving his, his home, the place of his wanderings and the place that God had promised his, his fathers. So this was not easy. And, and Jacob must have remembered when he got to Beersheba, again, kind of the borderlands, right? Before the, the wastes of the Sinai Peninsula that would take him to, to Cairo, to what's modern-day Cairo, or probably just south of Cairo, modern-day Cairo, to, to Egypt, to the capital of Egypt, um, he, he, he would have remembered that his fathers had worshipped Yahweh God there at Beersheba. There was actually a rich history, a rich spiritual history in this place. And so back in Genesis chapter 21, 33, Abraham, his grandfather, had planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That, that calling on the Lord was a sign of fidelity and dependence upon God. And Jacob's father Isaac had done the same. And so we read in Genesis 26, verse 23, from there Isaac went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Again, that that statement of fidelity and dependence. 
and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So this, actually, this, this time in Beersheba, which is easy just to kind of, it's easy, frankly, to pass over most of Genesis 46, especially all the names, right? And you're like, you know, what relevance does this have to us? Maybe get to the story of, you know, the Hollywood story of, of Joseph and Jacob reuniting and the tears. We get to that part. But let's not forget something very important here. This, this was a monumental spiritual experience in Jacob's life. So these sacrifices that he offered were not burnt offerings, which would be sin offerings, right? These are actually offerings of thanksgiving. And so what's going on here? Well, Jacob was basically rededicating himself to God and and calling out to God for help here. And, And this is very important because this is the exact place that God wants his people dependent on him. This is what we in God's providence have been singing about already. This is what God moved uh, Pam and our, our, our children's ministry team to, to feel like should be our, um, our, our theme of the morning. And that is a place of dependence, knowledge of dependence on God. We, we, we cried out in song, I depend on you. Now, it's important to remember this is not where Jacob has been most of his life, right? Most of his life, Jacob has not been a great example of a, a, a person who depends on God, on Yahweh. Much, much of his life he had resorted to, um, to, to his own devices, which for him were trickery and, and manipulation of people. You, you kind of see that as a theme throughout his life. That's how he tried to get ahead, kind of gaslighting people, tricking them, manipulating them. Uh, he, he really wasn't a trustworthy fellow for much of his life. But here now, he realizes his need for wholehearted dependence on God's help. So Jacob actually ended well. If you look at his life, he didn't really start well, but he ends well. And we're going to see that in the next couple chapters as he, as he blesses his gener- the, the generations to come. He does that in faith, actually. So he ends well. I hope, I hope and we're going to, I think, hit on this in the next couple of weeks, but but, but I hope you remember that. Uh, the start of the race matters, but it's really how you finish that really matters, folks. Well, here we see Jacob stepping out in faith, and it's likely he is scared. He's scared. He's an old man, and, and he's taking a one-way trip to Egypt, and he's leaving behind what he knows in kind of an area that he might have a little bit of autonomy in, and who knows what awaits for him in Egypt. This powerful civilization where he believes his son is alive and is powerful, and yet he's going to be now really at the mercy of his son, right? He's not going to be calling the shots. So this is, a, this is a kind of a fragile place to be in, and he's likely scared. And so we read in verse 2 that God spoke to him. We read, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. That's pretty cool. In visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. So note here that God calls him by name. So this is a, an intimate, a personal communication from God. And, and note here that Jacob's eager. He's eager to, to hear from the Lord. He has a submissive response, which is, here I am. Don't miss me. If the Lord spoke to you by name tonight, what would be your response? Would you be eager to hear from him? Or is there some, some sin that that is, is kind of blocking that relationship where you kind of want to go hide. 
Well, Jacob says, here I am. And so we see God promise Jacob four things here. So, so try to count those as we read these next two verses. Verses three and four. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. So I I count four. Some of you are smarter than me. You might count more, but um, I got four in my notes. And, And the first is that God promises him that he is going to fulfill promises that he had made his forefathers. That is, I will make you a great nation. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12 where God had spoken to Abram in in verse 1 and 2 and said to him, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God had given Abraham this, this, this great promise that he had reiterated to, to Isaac, and, and now he is reminding Jacob that he's going to get this done. And, he, and he's basically saying to Jacob, this might not be what you had planned, that would be going to Egypt, right? I mean, doesn't this seem like a departure from God's plan to make your name prosperous in Canaan? Now you're fleeing to Egypt because there's no food left in Canaan, you're starving, so you're going to a pagan place for food? Well, God is saying, this might not be what you planned, but it's part of my plan. I will fulfill my promises to your grandfather, Abraham. In fact, God had actually told Abraham later in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, God, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God's plan may not have been the script that Jacob would have written, but this was part of his plan, to build a nation. Egypt would be the cocoon, as it were, where God would would turn this extended family of nomads, of 70 people, into a great nation that nobody could count. That would happen in Egypt, even through affliction. So let's not forget, God is sovereign. He, his, his plan is going to happen, right? We, we, we have a bigger spotlight. We have, we have more truth now, right? We've got more than just, you know, I mean, he didn't even have these pages. He had oral traditions, right, and words from the Lord. We've got a whole Bible that tells us that God's plan is to reach all the nations, and it's going to be done. People, are, people will bow. The nations will bow before King Jesus. Right? We, we, we see that in the end of the book. It's going to happen. Might not be the way that we would write the script. Might be a little tougher for us or for others. But God promised that he would make him into a great nation. And then even, even more, I think, significantly, God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. That's the second promise here. Note the emphasis on I myself. God's presence will be with Jacob, even in pagan Egypt. Might be a a sojourner in a strange and foreign land, and you can imagine as he walked among the pyramids what he thought, and the temples and all the the architecture, what he thought. Um, God himself would be with him, 
even in pagan Egypt. Now, there's nothing greater than God's presence in our lives. Some of you may be called by God to go outside your comfort zone. That might mean a, uh, a mode of travel to get outside it, or it might be a metaphorical comfort zone. It might be just walking across your street. But God may be calling you to move outside your comfort zone. And remember, Jesus said, particularly in the context of obeying his command to Christians to fulfill his great commission, Jesus said, I will be with you. Matthew 28, 20, he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, it's, it's easy to seek God's presence when we're uncomfortable, when we're outside our comfort zone, when we're very cognizant of our weakness and our need for divine help. But, you know, it can be a little bit harder when we're comfortable, when we feel like we're in a routine in which we have some semblance of control. Easier sometimes, or harder sometimes to actually recognize that need of dependence on God, that I need you, God, I need you. If you're, you know, you're about to go under the knife in surgery, you're probably a little more aware maybe, right, than, than when you're sitting down in your office chair. Well, are you too comfortable, brothers and sisters? Are you too comfortable? Do, do you need to get a little more uncomfortable maybe? You know, the Lord can do that for you. Sometimes it's better to just learn to abide first, right? Because he loves you. He's going to help you depend on him. It, it might be better for you just to recognize that every breath comes from him. These songs we sung are true. Everything comes from him. You know, we, we sing a song uh, as elders, and we sing a song this morning. It's a different, different songs, but I don't know if you paid attention or if you noted, but they're about dying. The, the last verse in Abide With Me, we're singing that yesterday morning, um, is about passing, about dying, death, and hold, hold before me your cross before my closing breath. And, and we sang a similar song this morning about, about our dependence on him even as we're dying. But you know what? Don't, don't wait until that moment to depend on him. Depend on him today. Nurture his presence daily. Hope you're spending time with him daily. So God promised Jacob, that he would make him into a great nation, he promised him that he himself would go down with him, would sojourn with him, would, would be with him, his companion, his helper, the shade by his right hand in Egypt. And then here, the third thing I see is he says, I will also bring you up again. Now, in the, in the original language, this is actually an emphatic statement. One, one scholar kind of paraphrased it or said it could be translated like this, it is I that shall surely bring you up. In other words, there's a reference here, a prophecy about the exodus. One day God would indeed bring his descendants back up out of Egypt as a, as a full-on nation. But you know, even, even individually here, um, and, and we don't, for us it's not such a big deal maybe what happens to our bodies after, I die, after we die. You know, I don't really care. I'm in heaven, right? But in, in Jacob's mindset and culture, that was a really big deal to, to be where you were buried. What happened to your body? And so Jacob would indeed be buried in this ancestral tomb in the promised land. And actually, it was Joseph that would lead the expedition in style, actually, when you read it. Um, Joseph was a man of style, we're going to see here in a bit. But if you think about it, think about it. He, he was, you know. He, he had his coat, he used to peacock around. Well, that's one thing that kind of hung on with him, what we're going to see here in a minute. He, 
he, he was into style. Okay? He was into a lot of great things of substance, but he was kind of a stylish dude. And he, he actually leads this expedition uh, in style to bury his dad later, we, we, we read. So God would actually bring even the body of, of Jacob um, um, back to the promised land, really as kind of a, a picture of what he would do later um, for, the, for the whole nation, what he'll do for us when, when he leads us to the promised land one day. And then he finally says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, for, for better or for worse, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And God is promising him that indeed Joseph will be with him when he dies. You're not going to die alone. You are going to indeed see your son. So what we see God reassuring Jacob here is that he should make this journey outside his comfort zone and into a place he never thought he would be called to go. And this was indeed a journey of faith. And so this leads us to our, our second point. Okay, um, our, our, our first point is that, that God was reassuring Jacob that he should indeed make this journey to, to Egypt. And now we see here, our second point is really a, a remembrance of Israel's genesis. That's what we see here in verses 5 through 27, all those, all those names that Max read for us so well. And so this, 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 this next section with all the names, it was actually written by Moses centuries later for the benefit of his readers. And I'm going to explain that to you in a moment, okay? Um, and I'm not going to be as brave as Max and, and read all these names. We've, we've heard them, okay? Feel free to go back and mold them over if you'd like. Um, every word is from the Lord, is from the Holy Spirit. But, but I want us to look carefully here at verse 5 through 7 for a moment. So look at verse 5. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, you've, you've, you've probably noticed here, but there are three generations named making this journey of faith together. And as I look at it, you, I actually see several families in which there are three generations sitting on a pew. Are, are there any four generations here? We got, I, I could make you stand, but I'm not going to embarrass you. But we have a, a number of, like, three-generation families here. Are there any four generations? Have I missed anybody? Okay, I guess not. But just, just wait around, hang around a little while if you're, like, the matriarch, patriarch, of an older generation that's here, and maybe we'll get to four. That'd be pretty cool, huh, on a, on a pew. Um, but, but we got a number of three generations in, in, in this church, and, and that's pretty neat here because we see the perspective is really kind of written from Joseph's brothers, and so they're making this journey with their father, but also all their children. And so it's, it's, I just think it's cool to have families involved together in leading our, our service. We had three generations up here on, on, on the stage. Now, you, you may wonder, well, why the list? Why, why did God inspire Moses to, you know, do this list of all these names that he kind of totals up to this typological perfect number of 70? Well, God, well Moses wrote this list of names as we, as we see here from verses 8 through 27 
as a remembrance to God's chosen people, Israel, of where they came from. Like, these, are your, these are your forefathers, right? We have lists in our nation of our founding fathers, and we think about names like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And, and, and that's what these were. These were, these were the, the names of, of, of where all the, the nation came from. These were the forefathers and the, and the foremothers that are listed. Actually, the forefathers are mentioned, but, but then he talks about, actually, there's a couple, couple ladies, but it's mentioned to the, 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 the daughters that are there as well. And so here we see a reference to God's faithfulness to preserve and prosper his people. And so it, it, it culminates with verse 27, in which we read, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, 70 is really kind of a of a, and I use the word typological, it's a number that represents perfection. We see this in several places in the Bible, or wholeness. And so, in the scope of the world population, 70 might not seem significant, right? That's just a big extended family. That's what this is. Just a nomad tribe of nobodies, basically, as far as the Egyptians were concerned. But, but later here, we, we see Moses reflecting in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 22, he, he writes, your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons. So this is now Deuteronomy referring to this story. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Well, maybe, maybe you're struggling with thoughts of the future. Which, you know, should I hang a right or a left? Am, am I going to make it? Am I going to be successful? Where, where are you leading me, God? Well, if you're maybe struggling as you think about your future, as you think about decisions you need to make, maybe you need to stop and remember God's faithfulness in your past. That's what, that's what this list of names is. It's a remembrance. It's a marker. God's faithfulness. Look at where we came from. Look at how God preserved us. How, he, how he's, he blessed us, even through some trying circumstances. So how did the Lord lead you to the point where you are here today, in your life, physically, and spiritually? So what we see here is a remembrance. We see a remembrance of Israel's genesis, where they came from, how the Lord uh, brought them from, from, just a, from a, a whole number of 70, a small number to being greater than the sands of, or as innumerable as the sands of, of, of the seashore are. So finally, we arrive here at the story of reunification of a father and of a son. And this is something that I think we can all relate to. Verse 28, he, that would be Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Gosh. Now, this is certainly Jacob's uh, reunion story with Joseph, his son. But it's interesting that Moses here takes a moment to point out that Judah was sent out as a scout to, to, to basically lead the way of the family into Goshen, which was kind of actually the best of the land in Egypt for uh, pastoral folks, for, for people who had animals to, to live as a fertile area. Right? So, so it's interesting, again, that, that Moses notes that it was actually Judah who kind of led the way as we see this transition going on. 
as we see God electing by his hand of providence and, and working and redeeming Judah to really be kind of the, the leader. For the, the, the scepter would not depart from Judah's tribe. And of course, Judah was the ancestor of Christ. Now, you could certainly argue that in a grander sense, Joseph had already done this for the last 22 years. He had paved the way for the survival of Jacob's clan to be able to come into to Egypt. But notice, as I mentioned earlier, as I referred to it, in verse 29, that when Joseph showed up on the scene to meet his dad, he arrived in style. You know, a couple of years ago, we were kind of looking as our family at our transportation needs. And uh, we, we had a you know, limited budget. And as our daughter was driving, we realized we need another vehicle. And so I figured, well, I could either go buy a really crummy car that I'll be having to fix all the time, or I could buy a motorcycle. And so I went out and, and you know, got on Craigslist and ended up not buying a Harley. You know, these, you know, I wasn't trying to, you know, you know, show up in town, make a statement, you know, knock your feelings out, you know. Um, but you know, I went out and got a Triumph. I, you know, a little, I was looking for kind of a medium-sized bike that I could, you know, kind of, you know, throw in a corner in the garage, um, you know, low maintenance, uh, and something that you wouldn't want to do a cross-country road trip in, but great for just kind of getting around town, you know. And so I've enjoyed riding that bike and uh, around. It's been, it's been good therapy for me, uh, maybe a little bit of a midlife crisis kind of thing, I don't know. But, but anyway, so, so one day I'm, I'm leaving the church, and I had my helmet on, and this, it was summertime, so you know, I had my leather jacket, it's kind of hot, you know, when you throw that on, you want to start moving or you start sweating. And, and you know, I promised my wife I'd always wear the gear, I would dress for the slide, not the ride, because I'm conservative, I'm trying to, you know, stay alive. And, and so, uh, you know, I've got my gear on, I've got my helmet, not my cool retro helmet, which works in the fall and spring, but it's kind of this goofy looking helmet, it keeps you safe, it's got a little indoor visor thing on it. That it flips up, you know? And so this, I'm, I'm just about to pull out, I'm just about to fire up my bike, and this big old car pulls up next to me. This lady, who I can't recall her name, I'll just, I'll call her Miss Rosie, you know? Miss um, Rosie um, rolls her window down, and she starts kind of asking me some questions, kind of yelling at me. So I, you know, I, I had to pull my helmet th- thing up, and, you know, it looks really goofy, like a mushroom head. So I'm mushroom head, you know, looking over at at Ms. Rosie, and she asked me a few questions about our church. So I'm, I'm answering the questions, still sitting on my bike, and finally she says, uh, do you work here? And I said, well, yes, ma'am, I do work here. She says, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm one of the pastors. She says, really? You're a pastor? She says, I don't know pastors rode motorcycles. She said, I thought they drove Cadillacs. <laughs> so evidently, Evidently, I didn't make um, much of an impression of style on Rosie, all right? Um, I told her I couldn't afford a Cadillac, so I had a Triumph, and, and, and so, you know, said goodbye and, you know, took off. But, you know, I, I might not know how to get around in style, but Jacob, or J- not Jacob, Joseph knew how to ride in style, okay? He really did. Joseph had some style to him, and I'm telling you, in the original text, it kind of comes out here. That's what pastors say when they just want you to believe them, by the way. They appeal to that, you know, the original text. As if I'm an, I'm an expert with a decoder magic ring that no one else has. I'm just pulling one of those here for a moment. Um, verse 29, then Joseph prepared his chariot. Okay, you get that? That's in English. He prepared his chariot. He didn't just jump in his chariot. I'm going to go see dad. He, he prepared his chariot. And what that means here is by preparing his chariot, Joseph had a bunch of attendants 
preparing his chariot, right? So we're talking about a, like a retinue of people, of, of servants and attendants here, kind of coming all around, and, and Joseph is getting that chariot ready to, to, to arrive in style. And he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him. Now, in the original language, I just already told you, that's like a pastoral trick you should be a little bit suspicious of. And the Hebrew, blah, 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 you know, Greek. Usually it means what it says in English, okay? But I am going to say there's a little shade of a little more meaning here. Uh, he presented himself in the words of one scholar, and that's what you do when you want to make sure that people know it's not just you. Um, uh, the quote, the power, grandeur, and graciousness of Joseph in his own chariot attended by numerous servants. That, that's the implication here of the idea of presenting himself, the way that word is used in patriarchal literature, okay, presenting yourself. All right, so, so then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel's father in Goshen. He presented himself to him. And, and here's, here's kind of the point of all that. You never stop wanting to impress your dad. In 22 years, um, Joseph's now ruler of Egypt. His dad is, is like a bearded, probably frankly a smelly nomad, right, who doesn't bathe much, living in a tent, right, with a bunch of animals, a bunch of sheep and stuff. And yet Joseph, he wants to impress his dad. He wants his dad's, he wants his dad's approval. He wants his dad to be impressed, to be proud of him. And I'm sure there were nerves on both sides here. 22 years, right? All kinds of nerves here. But he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Love overcomes protocol, you know? It's a beautiful picture. So Jacob here, or Joseph here, in all his fancy clothes and his fancy chariot with all his attendants, he falls on the grisly beard of his dad on his neck and he, and he weeps, and his, and his dad weeps. And so Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, verse 30, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. So let's not miss the beauty of this moment. Uh, father and son reunified here. And Joseph's comment here, um, or Jacob's comment here, let me die since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. It, it reminds me of someone else who said something similar. A, another old guy in the New Testament named Simeon. When he held baby Jesus in his arms, he'd been waiting for years, hoping, believing that a Messiah would, been, would be born. And God revealed to him, this is him. And so in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 29, Simeon says, and it was ancient Simeon who says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. One writer, uh, one theologian put it this way, here Jacob beheld his son, his temporal savior, and said that he could now die. Later, Simeon would behold the son, his eternal savior, and knew that he would die in peace. So what do I want us to remember here as we land the plane? Well, here's, here's, here's the thing. God has provided a savior 
to reunify, or you could say to reconcile us with God, His perfect Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a, in a sense of creation, God is the Father of all of humanity in the sense of creation. We, we all come from God. He made our forefathers. He, he, he individually designed Adam, right, out of the clay, out of the dirt of the ground, and he designed Eve out of Adam's, one of Adam's ribs, right? But the Bible says in Psalm 139 that each one of us, he uniquely designs in our mother's womb, right? So in a, in a fatherly or in a creator sense, God is the father of all. And yet, tragically, sin has separated humanity from their heavenly father such that they are no longer in a position of sonship, but they're in a position of enmity, okay? So, and, and that's, that's the difference. That's the bad news of the gospel that our society doesn't like, but that is that not everybody's okay, okay? Because of our sin, when we're born, it doesn't take us long to consciously rebel against our maker and Instead of being children of God, it means that we are rightful recipients of wrath. So hear the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel. Just kind of meditate on these gospel words as I, as I close. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Later, in, 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 in verse 8, Paul writes to the Romans, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who did he die for? Everybody who repents and believes in him. And, and so we're no longer in a place of enmity, but we are adopted and brought back into the family as true sons and, and, a, and a true father. We are un, reunified with God. Paul writes, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation, reunification, a, 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 beautiful, um, a, a, a beautiful event in which now we can, look, we, can, we can pray straight to God as we would call out independence to a father who loves us, who no longer sees our sin, who no longer sees our rebellion, sees the beauty of Christ in us, and it just loves us. So I'd like to invite you as we close for a moment, uh, let's just think past the dark and evil holiday of Halloween to the bright and glorious holiday of Christmas for a moment. And, and I want to remind you of, of a song that we, we often sing, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? Well, listen to these words, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's what that song's all about, celebrating reconciliation, reunification between us and 
God. And as we, as we close our service here, we're going to sing in a moment, Be Thou My Vision, one of my favorite songs of all. Um, and I want you to think about these words that we're going to sing together, okay? And as, as we sing, I hope you'll meditate on these words. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best sought by day or night, waking or sleeping. Thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, that you look on us with even greater fatherly delight than Jacob had when he looked on Joseph doing all he could to impress his dad, um, um, longing, having dreamt about that moment of reunification for years. Um, Lord, we, we thank you that, that you love us so much, and that while we were not good children, but total treasonous rebels against you, you sent your son Christ to die for us, to die for our sins that your holiness could not tolerate or bear. Thank you that he took your wrath in our place. And Lord, so that we may know you, we may be reunified with you. And Father, if there's anybody, and I know there are, in this room, people who you lovingly created, who are still right now in a position of enmity with you, I pray that today would be the day that they would simply repent, would look to Jesus Christ in faith as their Savior, would call out to him and, and, and ask him to save them. Lord, and that you would become their true father and they would become your true son or your true daughter. And Lord, for those of us who have, have been in that place with you for some time, help us to never take it for granted, but to delight in you and to depend on you. And I pray in, in Jesus Christ's great name, amen. Would you stand as we sing together, please?